All right, as you're being seated, if you'll find your Bible and open it up with me to Luke chapter 20, we'll also be in Psalm 118 today. We're going to cover quite a bit of ground in the scriptures, so you're going to need to lean into the Bible today and make sure that you work with it and, and allow yourself to really engage with the parable. There's a Bulgarian proverb that says, Seize opportunity by the beard, for it is bald behind. Uh, there was a general by the name of Douglas MacArthur who once said, There is no security on this earth, there is only opportunity. And Thomas Edison is reported to have said, Opportunity is missed by most because it is dressed in overalls and looks like work. Uh, Last week was Father's Day, and as I think about Father's Day, one of the goals of a dad is to try to help your children have a lot of opportunities. And in life, there, there is something that I refer to as the opportunity funnel. And one of the things that parents and grandparents try to do is we try to make the top of that opportunity funnel as wide as possible so that when children begin life, they have all of life in front of them and they're not inhibited because of of certain things that, that we've done or maybe that they didn't have that caused them to just have small opportunity. In fact, one of the things that our culture's wrestling with right now is we've reached a point where we're able to give children such a wide amount of opportunity that it's often difficult for them to sort through all those different options to figure out exactly what it is that they want to be and what it is that they feel like God has called them to do. And so adolescence is actually now being pushed later into the 20s and sometimes 40s, 50s. You know, people are still dealing with, okay, how do I sort through all these opportunities to find, find what really matters to me or what God wants me to be? So we desire, and this is good, we desire to give our kids a good education. We want them to have a healthy self-image. We want them to experience genuine love. We desire those little ones to have a moral compass. We want, them to give, we want to give them experiences where they have seen parts of the world and they've bonded and, and seen, experienced other cultures. And we also want them grounded in the faith so that they are not limited in life because we also realize innately this. The opportunity funnel. As you get older, it begins to narrow. And so as you age, there becomes fewer opportunities that you can really partake in. So when I'm talking to a kid, talk to a child like my 10-year-old, okay, what is it that you want to be when you grow up? They can pick whatever they want to be. Whatever they want to be, they can pick. And then earlier I was talking to a college student. She's a freshman in college. And so when I talked to her, I said, okay, so when you go off to college, what are you going to study to be? The opportunities have begun to narrow a little bit. You become a young adult. Okay, where do you want to live? Do you want mountains? Do you want beach? Do you like a lot of flat here in Texas? You know, exactly. Where where do you want to live? Who do you want to marry? When you start having children, the the funnel begins to narrow a little bit more and you start thinking, okay, how can I provide stability and security for my children? Because we realize having a hometown, having an anchor point, that that's all all very, very important. As you start aging a little bit, 
you begin to feel perhaps a little bit pushed out of some of the opportunities at work. Maybe your health begins to fade and there are things that you used to could do that are a little bit more difficult now. And so as we look back on our life, we begin to realize that I am where I am because of choices that I've made. There have been opportunities that have come into my life. Some of those opportunities I seized, some I did not. I made some good choices, I made some bad choices, and that all works to where I am today. As I look back here in my advanced age now, I look back on my life and I realize, okay, I made some good decisions. I I made a really good decision on who I married. I married well, way above my head, okay? Till death do you part can be a long time. So you need to get that one right, you know? And, And I married well, and that was a good decision, and I benefit from that good decision every day. I've also made some bad decisions. I've had some missed opportunities. Back in 2004, I had a little money saved that I wanted to invest. And so I was thinking about a stock or something that I could invest in. And there was this company named Google that I thought that would be good to invest in. But then I looked at the share price and it was expensive. And I thought, well, I can't afford that. Well, it's now gone like 22 times higher than that since then. And I think, oh man, what a missed opportunity. We all look back and we see times where we seized moments and see times where we missed them. In Luke chapter 20, Jesus tells a parable of a missed opportunity. Look with me there in your Bibles. Let's all engage with Scripture today. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and he leased it to tenant farmers, and he went away for a long time. So here's the context for the parable. It's set in a vineyard. Vineyards were actually big business in Jesus' day. A lot of money came through the vineyards. And so Mark's gospel also shares this parable and gives us a little bit more detail. The owner made this vineyard state-of-the-art. So he built a fence around the vineyard. This kept wild animals out. It protected the crops. He also built towers. And those towers would allow the supervisors to watch for threats. And it also allowed the supervisors to watch the field workers to make sure that they were reaching max productivity. Not only that, but the owner installed within the vineyard a wine vat. And so this great also increased, uh, it increased the, the money that the vineyard could produce. And so the owner had created this vineyard, he had built it, and provided every opportunity for success. The funnel was wide, multiple opportunities before him. So here's what he did. He leased the vineyard to some tenant farmers, and the owner goes away, but he goes away with an expectation that they would work the vineyard, they would have a better life for themselves because now they were tenant farmers, but he would also receive a percentage of the proceeds. This is where the conflict begins. Dun, dun, dun. So verse 10, at harvest time, he sent a slave to the farmers so that they might give him some fruit from the vineyard. But the farmers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So he sent yet another slave, but they beat that one too, 
treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, but they wounded this one too and threw him out. So the owner decides, I'm going to send one of my servants to collect what's mine. We can call this servant Jeremiah. And Jeremiah approaches the vineyard, and the farmers literally beat him up and send him back to the owner all beat up and empty-handed. So the owner has a decision to make at this point. He decides that he's going to be gracious. He decides that he's going to give them another opportunity, and so he calls on another servant of his. Let's say we call him Isaiah, and he sends Isaiah to the vineyard, and he says, you bring back what's mine. But when Isaiah gets there, they beat him up as well, but they don't stop there. They also shame him. Perhaps they cut his beard. That would be considered an insult in that culture. Perhaps they took some of his clothing, but they put him in a shameful state, and then they sent him back to the owner, having been embarrassed and having been beaten up empty-handed. So the owner then, again, gives them another opportunity, another act of grace, another moment to do the right thing. And he calls John, looks through his... Uh, employees, and he. Everybody likes John. John is just a cool cat. I mean, he wears he wears camel hair. He likes to hang out at the Locust Bar. Everybody has a lot of charisma. Everybody just likes to hang out with John. And he thinks to himself, they'll listen to him. And so he sends John to the vineyard. But when John gets there. He is wounded, probably cut, harmed in some way. And then he, too, is sent back to the owner empty-handed. So the parable continues in verse 13. The owner takes all this in and he says, What should I do? What should I do? Some of you are thinking, I'll tell you what he should do. He should go down there and he should, like, destroy all these farmers, right? But the farmer, he, the owner, he's a gracious man, and so he thinks to himself, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. So the owner, he's trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. He thinks to himself, you know, maybe they think I don't care. Maybe it's just because I've been impersonal. I have, I've just sent my servants and I need to send someone who truly represents me. Someone that is a family member that shows that I care, and he can remind them of how well I have treated them. So the son is sent to the vineyard. But as the son approaches, he realizes that he is coming upon some men who have fallen in love with a girl, a girl named Greed. Wouldn't that make a good country song? (laughs) Song about a girl named Greed. Here I go, okay? And so these farmers had become entitled, they had become spoiled, and they thought they knew it all. And they had lost sight of gratitude, they had lost sight of the goodness that was extended to them, and they had lost sight of God. They forgot that it was the owner who built the farm. They forgot that he had treated them well. You see, in those ancient cultures, if your daddy was a baker, you became a baker. If your dad was a tailor, you became a tailor. These farmers had been given an opportunity to break a chain, to become something more than they ever could have been. They were going to have a portion of the vineyard, but they forgot 
that it did not ultimately belong to them. They forgot that without the owner, they really had no opportunity. And so when the tenant farmers, probably up in their towers, look out and see the sun coming, they have a committee meeting. And they try to discuss what they should do. And so here's what they say. This is the heir. Let's kill him. Let's kill him. Now here's their twisted thinking. So that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. They basically took him to a different location, killed him. Now remember, remember these farmers had been given everything they had by the owner. Now I can imagine when they graduated high school and they walked into Palestine High School and they had their uh, gowns and their cardboard hats on and they were graduating and the keynote speaker told them, uh, kids, this is the beginning of your life. All the opportunities are before you. And these farmers probably thought what a great moment it was when they were given the opportunity to lead the farm and they could live in the vineyard and they could live the life of their dreams. But as life proceeded, they began to choose the wrong opportunities. And little by little, sin had wrapped itself around their hearts. Know this about sin. When you choose to go away from God, when you choose to live a life of selfishness rather than a life of faith, that's sin. And whenever we choose sin, sometimes it does bring a certain amount of pleasure for a season. Sometimes for a few weeks or a few months, maybe even for a few years, it all seems to be going all right. But sin always has consequences. God doesn't say don't do things because he wants to take away your fun. God says don't do those things because he knows if you go down that path, it's going to hurt you. And sin will always take you further than you wanted to go. Sin will always leave you longer than you wanted to stay. And sin will always cost you more than you want to pay. When you start running away from God, it'll take you further away than you ever thought you'd go. And it'll cost you more than you ever thought you'd pay. And there's not just eternal consequences for our sin. There's also earthly consequences for our sin. And every day I talk to adults. I talk to people who are living those consequences because of decisions that they made that were ungodly. And so by the time that the sun showed up to the vineyard, the farmer's view of life had become sick. It had become twisted. They had a perverted worldview. They thought it all belonged to them, and they thought they should just take it. And so they began to say to themselves, well, maybe the owner is dead. This is the heir. He's going to take it all away from us, and so we'll just take his life from him, and then we'll take the, the vineyard, and it'll be ours. So what does the parable mean? Because a parable, if you remember, is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And so parables always have more to it than just what you read on the surface. It's kind of like whenever you ask your wife how you're doing, and she says, I'm fine. Okay? There's always more to it than that. Okay? Some of you guys are like scared to laugh at that. I understand, I understand. But there's always more to it. There's always more to the parable than just the story. This story illustrates God and the opportunities that He had given Israel. And so in the parable, 
The owner is God. And the farmers are the chief priests, the scribes, and the, and the Pharisees who had questioned Jesus' authority. And a couple passages earlier, these guys were coming to Jesus saying, basically, by what authority are you teaching and, and serving and doing these miracles? So the fruit was supposed to be the harvest that God expected from Israel. And the murdered servants were the Old Testament prophets. They were Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, uh, Hosea, Amos, Habakkuk, the all-name team of the Old Testament. Those were those Old Testament prophets that God had sent to Israel and said, basically, you're doing the wrong thing, you need to turn to God. And they were all pushed out and abused. And people said to them, don't listen to them, ignore them. They don't know what they're talking about. And Jesus is trying to get these people to realize that they're missing it all. God has given them opportunity after opportunity, but they can't see it. Why can they not see it? Because they're too consumed with themselves. So, Jesus says, what will the vineyard owner do to them? He will come and destroy those farmers and give the vineyard to others. But when they heard this, they said, no, never. He would never do this. Now, Jesus here is talking about how God was going to take the relationship that he had with Israel and he was going to begin to turn the focus on to another people, onto the nations. If you read the Old Testament scriptures, oh, how God loved Israel, how gracious he was to Israel. He, gave, he took them out of slavery. He gave them a land. He gave them opportunity and wealth. He called them his children. He lived in relationship with them. He used Israel. It is from Israel that we have our scriptures. It is through Israel that Christ was born in Bethlehem. Jesus lived in Israel. God had a special relationship with Israel. They had the opportunity to be a part of something that was eternal, but it was not merely supposed to be about them and God, an isolated God that was not to be shared with anybody else. The story of Jonah shows us that the message of God was supposed to go to the nations, and time and time again, Jesus emphasized how we're supposed to go and make disciples, not just the people that live around us and look like us and talk like us, but we're to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And time and time again, God came to Israel, and time and time again, He gave them opportunities, and they rejected His messengers, and finally God says, okay, I'm giving the vineyard to another. I'm changing my attention. I'm going to do something different. And Jesus then looked at the religious leaders and he said to them, then what is the meaning of the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected, this has become the cornerstone. Now this is key to the entire parable and I think most people probably miss this part of the parable. What is Jesus talking about here whenever he quotes the scripture? He's actually going back to Psalm 118. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, you're more than welcome to do so. Psalm 118. That would have been a familiar passage to these guys because it was one of those psalms that was probably learned in Jerusalem VBS circa AD 03. Okay, so Paul Reed and his friends were probably at VBS in Jerusalem and they had the Psalm 118 theme going on for VBS week, and perhaps their theme verse for that week was, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And when you look at the psalm, you see 
that it begins with this idea that we are to give thanks for God is good. Give thanks for God is good. When we stop doing that, that's when we start going down the wrong paths. When we forget that God is good, when we cease to be grateful people who give thanks to our good God, then we start going down those selfish paths and we start missing the opportunities and muting the voice of God in our lives. Perhaps on night two, they were taught that God's love is faithful and that it endures forever because it says three times between verses two through four that God's faithful and that his love endures forever. And so I think about those three servants that were sent to the vineyard, and each of those servants represents how God's love is faithful and it endures forever. And he was giving them opportunities that they did not deserve, but he was continuing to be faithful in his love. And then perhaps on night three, those students would see how the son was rejected and they would begin to see that Psalm 118 was intended to be a messianic psalm, that it was supposed to point to Jesus and how he would die on the cross and conquer death for us. In verse 10, it talks about how all the nations surrounded me in the name of Yahweh. I destroyed them. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me in the name of Yahweh. I destroyed them. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished like a fire. Now catch this. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished like a fire among thorns. In the name of Yahweh, I destroyed them. They pushed me hard to make me fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my, what's the word? Salvation. Salvation. And then perhaps on the final night, they would have been taught this theme verse again here in verses 21 and 22 of Psalm 118, where the Bible says, I will give thanks to you. Remember, it started out how God is good. And we give thanks to that good God. And we get to verse 21, it says, I will give thanks to you. Why? Because you have answered me and have become my salvation. (laughs) The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord. It is wonderful in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So you're thinking about building something and you're looking through all the materials and you're an ancient builder and so you're using these big blocks of stone and you're looking for a sturdy, strong stone to be the cornerstone that would support the weight of what you were building. And as you look through the pile, you see this stone and you say, that won't work, that'll never work, and you throw it out. Jesus is the stone. He was the stone that the builders rejected. The religious leaders look at Jesus and they're like, that's just waste. That doesn't matter. That's refuse. Let's throw it out. But Jesus says, this very stone that you are rejecting is going to be the cornerstone for the work of God to the nations. And it is from Jesus and his death and his burial and his resurrection that the gospel began to expand, not just in Jerusalem and expanded beyond Israel so that it eventually transcended the oceans and landed here in Murphy, Texas, and you're right here. Why are you here? Because of the cornerstone that is Jesus, the cornerstone that was rejected by His own people became the cornerstone that led to the expansion of the gospel. And Jesus was telling them, look, 
Here is the opportunity to be a part of what history is all about. Here is the opportunity to be a part of what God is doing, and you're missing it even though it's standing right in front of you. Do you realize the greatest opportunities in life have nothing to do with career, things, or places that you can go? Now, none of those things are bad. I wish you well in your career. I hope that you make lots and lots of money, and then you tithe. That's what I hope. I pray for that every single day, that you do really well in your career. I I pray that you have nice things. There's nothing wrong with Christians having nice things. Don't succumb to that Christian guilt. I can't believe you have that. You're a Christian. Don't you You can have nice things. You can go on vacations, and you can experience uh, the world, and you can see things. But you know what? The greatest opportunities in life revolve around your soul. Those are the things, those opportunities of the soul, which often deal with relationships because people are eternal by nature. Those are the greatest opportunities in life. So if you miss out on this promotion at work, what's the worst that can happen? You become a cashier for the next three years, right? It's not the end of the world. If you miss out on an Alaskan cruise, it's really not that big of a deal. You just enjoy 105-degree weather for a few more weeks, but you'll, know, you'll survive it. It'll, it'll be all right. right? Uh, be nice to go, but it's okay. But if you miss out on the opportunities of the soul, all is lost. The opportunities of the soul, those are the opportunities that really matter. And so Jesus looks at these guys, and he basically says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and if it falls on anyone, it will grind him to powder. Great quotes of Jesus right there, okay? T-shirt right there, grinds you to powder, right? Okay, the stone will grind you to powder, right? He's, he's laying it down on him. That's a stout verse for Jesus. So, so what's he saying? He's saying, okay, the initial time the Messiah came, he came as the innocent baby of Bethlehem, but when he comes back, he's going to come back as the King of kings and Lord of lords, When Christ comes back, he will show that he was not done with Israel, that he actually had an eternal plan for them as well. When Christ comes back, the shalom of creation that was fractured by sin will be restored and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. You will not have the option of rejecting the owner because the owner will be coming to claim that which is his. And when he comes again, he's going to come with power and might. Something you need to understand about the message of Jesus. It always calls you to reaction. Jesus is by far, easily, the most influential person that has ever lived. It's really difficult to make any argument for anybody else. Easily the most influential person that has ever lived. He's also probably the most polarizing person that's ever lived. You say, well, why is that? Because Jesus' message essentially said, you're either with me or you're not. He didn't leave room for this in-between position. He was different than any other major religious world teacher. Uh, Buddha, Muhammad, these other major teachers, they say essentially, here's my teachings, now go follow my teachings. Jesus said, here I am, believe in me. So at the beginning point of a relationship with God through Jesus is faith. We believe in Jesus, recognizing that we are sinners. Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. He didn't say, I'm a way to God. He didn't say, I'm one path that you may choose. He said, I'm it. Is that exclusive? Yeah, it's also precise. 
If God's going to make a way for us to be redeemed, I wish he would tell me exactly what it is. And he's told us Christ is his method so that humankind may be redeemed. Now, in our culture, it is popular because we want to be inclusive to try to create a middle ground when it comes to Christ. And so what we'll often do, maybe someone's not a Christian, but they have friends who are Christians. They don't want to just tear down your beliefs. And so they begin to frame Jesus this way, that Jesus was a good guy. He was a good moralist. He was an ethicist. He taught a good, good stuff. If you were to follow his teachings, it's a good way to live. But he's not the Savior. He's not the Son of God. Let's cut out all the supernatural stuff that is in the story and kind of just look at Jesus as a good guy. The only problem with that is Jesus. Okay? Because if you actually read what he says, there's no in-between when it comes to Jesus. Good moral teacher doesn't work because he claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be our way from sin to life, our way from darkness to light. He claimed to be salvation, not just following his teachings, but by believing in him. And Jesus taught over and over again that until you believe in him, repenting of sin, trusting in him as Savior, you won't even have the power and ability to follow his teachings. So it all starts with, do you believe in Christ? And here was the opportunity for these religious leaders to believe in him. What should their reaction have been? To bow the knee and place faith in Christ. Instead, look at the reaction, verse 19. Then the scribes and chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him that very hour. They wanted to kill him right there. But because they knew he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. And because they feared the people, they had to wait. But they started conspiring and trying to figure out how they could kill him. So the story ends in tragedy. These religious leaders that had given their lives to the temple to try to teach others the Scripture, they wind up dying apart from God. It becomes a prophecy. Jesus Himself becomes the Son who was killed. But Jesus also becomes the cornerstone through His resurrection of what God wanted to do. Jesus Himself becomes the launching point for the church, which launches the gospel to all peoples, and launches the gospel and brings it near to you right now. And here's what I want you to know. The story of your life does not have to be a tragedy. Regardless of your past, regardless of bad decisions that you have made up to this point, things that you've done that you wished you could do over, the story of your life does not have to be a tragedy. God loves you. He is good, He is faithful, and He gives you another opportunity right here in this moment to trust Him, to place your faith in Him. And there is forgiveness for everyone. There's forgiveness for you when you place your faith in Christ. And there is purpose, and there is meaning to life. The survey that came out a couple months ago has broken my heart. It looked at the United States and came to a conclusion that as a country, we are overwhelmingly lonely. And the most lonely segment of society, the most lonely demographic, you know what age it was? 18 to 23. And what strikes me as so odd is that we're more connected than ever before. We're connected to a thousand people through Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, and yet we feel lonely. Why? 
Because so many of us are chasing after opportunities that don't really last and missing out on the few opportunities that are eternal. And Christ says, I'll bring love to that void of loneliness. I'll bring my presence to your life. And no matter where you go or what you do, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'm here. And I can change you from the inside out. I can make you a new creation. I can bring forgiveness to your past, purpose to your present, and I can bring hope to your future. You say, Lash, this world has a lot of darkness and evil and injustice in it. Yes, it does. But part of the message of the gospel is that there is hope beyond this world. And the evil and the darkness that we see around us and read about every single day on the Internet, it's temporary because one day the stone that was rejected is coming again. And when he does... He will renew all things to himself and make all things new. And we will be with him, not just for the season that we call life here on earth, but we will be with him for all eternity. That is the hope of salvation. And Christ extends it to you. And so here's my question for you. Have you ever received it? Have you ever seized the moment of salvation, the opportunity of salvation? Now, I'm not talking about whether or not your mama was a good person and read to you stories whenever stories out of the Bible when you were a kid or whether or not your daddy was a deacon or your grandpa was a circuit preacher who went around to different churches. I'm not talking about any of that stuff. I'm talking about have you personally ever truly trusted in Christ as your Savior and Lord? Because this is the opportunity that God presents to you right now. The opportunity to know Christ as Savior. And if you've never had that moment in your life, I pray that right now you will seize that opportunity and become a believer in Christ. Would you guys be so kind as to bow your heads with me, please? I know there's somebody in the room that I'm talking to today because I just feel it within my soul. And this needs to be your moment where you turn from selfishness and you turn from sin and you turn to Christ, this needs to be your moment of salvation. There's no magical set of words. There's no magical formula. This is between you and God. And just right where you are, I want to encourage you to call out to God and just have a conversation with God. You say, Lash, I don't know what to say. You, you may say something like this, Heavenly Father, I've done some things that are wrong. I have sinned. And I ask forgiveness for my, for my sins. I know I'm not perfect. And I pray that you will help me not to live my life selfishly, running away from you. Instead, Lord, this morning I run to you. And I open my heart to you, Father, and I pray that you might pour salvation into my soul. I pray that you might change me from the inside out. Because I want to be a a person who's alive. I want to be alive and I want to be alive spiritually. So that my life is connected not just to the physical world, but my life is connected to the spiritual world. And that I find out why it is that I'm here. And how you've created me. To be a part of your story. And so Lord, may this moment be my salvation moment. If today's your day, I want you to mark this moment right now, okay? Mark where you are, how you feel, what you're doing. When you get home today, write it down. Put it in a place where you can go back to it. Never forget this moment because this is a moment of salvation. After the service, 
If there's somebody that you know that truly walks with the Lord, tell them what happened to you today. I'm here at the front. You can come talk to me during this next song. I'll be here after the service. There is nothing that I take more joy in than being a pastor to people and encouraging you. If this is your day of salvation, this is a day of new beginnings. Rejoice in it because it's a day of goodness. Father, we thank you that you are faithful, that your love endures. We thank you, Father, for new beginnings. We thank you, Father, that the stone that was rejected was precious to you, that it's a cornerstone, that there is no one that you desire to refuse. There is no one that you desire to cast out, but you desire for all to come to faith in Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that we might live our lives seizing the greatest opportunity that life has to offer, the opportunity to call you Father and to be your children. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, in Jesus' power that we live. Amen.